I speak tonight for the dignity of man and the destiny of democracy. May the turbulence of our age yield to the true time of peace, when men and nations shall share a life that honors the dignity of each, the brotherhood of all. I see a world of open borders, open trade, and most importantly, open mind. mind. Hello, this is To the Republic with Jake and Jeff, a show dedicated to exploring civics, history, and U.S. institutions. I'm Jeff. And I'm Jake. On our first show, Jake and I explored the history of immigration in the United States. Mm -hmm. Uh, We looked at various push and pull factors, the significance of economic opportunities, and anti-immigrant sentiment. We then discussed the Mexican Farm Labor Agreement of 1942, otherwise known as the Bracero Program. This is something that we had both learned about in college and something that we thought was important to share. Yes. um, Which led us to analyzing the North American Free Trade Agreement and its effects. We then analyzed formal exclusion laws that were directed at specific certain immigrants, such as the Chinese Exclusion Act. And finally, we looked at the questions that immigrants are required to answer on the U.S. naturalization test Mm -hmm. and three pathways to a visa. If you're interested in listening to this first edition of To the Republic, please go to kxrwvancouver.org or download the X-Ray FM radio app. On this episode, we would like to explore how a two-party system developed in the United States, voters' rights movements, and how voter suppression manifests in our elections today. Yeah, so I thought we would start by taking a look at uh, the Articles of Confederation and the uh, U.S. Constitution mm-hmm. to see how uh, the debates about representation and voting kind of uh, began in the early republic and how that's kind of shaped how it's you know continued into uh, into modern times. So just to summarize what the Article- Articles of Confederation were, is it was kind of the first constitution of the mm-hmm. United States. Uh, it was ratified in 1781, um, and that was... Uh, done by the within the colonies pretty much during the american revolution Mm -hmm. and uh what it was is that it was a single uh single vote membership in kind of like a league of of the colonies Mm -hmm. so when when they would meet for the congress each state no matter what their population was or the size of the state um what how much wealth each state had each each uh state had one vote right right and that was uh done because of concerns over representation so you had uh Larger states, um, there's concerns amongst smaller states that the larger states would dominate them mm-hmm, mm-hmm. because of if, if it was proportional representation in a unicameral Congress, which is one chamber, that there wouldn't, um, the small states would have very little power within government mm-hmm. and basically just be kind of become slaves to the, to the bigger, to the bigger states' interests. Right. Now, fast forward a few years to 1787 and the Articles of Confederation had been going for a few years. The U.S. had won its a revolution against the British Empire. And what you have now is, um, because of the representation and, and issues over taxation within the Articles of Confederation, a very weak federal government, uh, the Continental Congress was called to uh, was called to action to amend the Articles of Confederation. Um, but what they ultimately ended up doing was completing a complete new document, which was you know, the U.S. Constitution. Right, right. And uh, some of the debates that happened within the U.S. Constitution um, really kind of 
formed and uh, how we see our voting rights in our in our voting structure today. Mm-hmm. So the first major debate, uh, which kind of set the stage for the bicameral legislature that we see today, which mm-hmm. is a two house system. Okay. So there's two chambers to our Congress, right? With this, the House of Representatives and the Senate, and that originated under James Madison. And James Madison uh, saw that the there would be the lower house, which would be directly represented by the uh, people, mm-hmm. would be elected by the people, and then the upper chamber would be elected from a pool of candidates from the lower chamber so the lower chamber would have like a pool of candidates that they could vote on Mm -hmm. and they would be elevated to this higher chamber so the senators were coming directly from the house of representatives yeah so they would be given a pool of candidates and then Mm -hmm. they'd be selected from that pool okay so they could come from any state they could come from any uh it it, it didn't matter where they came from they but a lot of times it'd be elites right um people with money landed gentry Mm -hmm. stuff like that so um that uh because it, but it had proportional representation in the lower house. Mm-hmm. So each the, the the states with more population mm-hmm. would have more represent have more representatives. Okay. So that yeah. kind of that that was a concern of the low of the of the smaller states like New Jersey. So the right. New Jersey plan uh, was implemented in the Constitutional Congress, uh, Constitutional Convention, and what what that did the New Jersey plan wanted to leave equal representation have a unicameral system mm-hmm. equal representation because this the small states didn't want to lose power to okay, the larger yeah, states yeah um because even though there would be proportional representation and they could elect in the under the Virginia plan they could elect a pool mm-hmm. if you have more votes to vote for that pool you're going to ha- you're going to control both chambers yeah. of congress okay um so the they eventually they uh with a lot of different debates the members of the convention agreed on the Connecticut compromise mm-hmm. which was uh which set in place the bicameral legislatures that we see today okay. and what that was is that you have proportional representation in the lower house which would become the, the u.s house of representatives mm-hmm. and then the upper chamber which would become the senate would be elected from state legislatures which mm-hmm. is actually different than what we would see now mm-hmm. so the state legislatures would elect their two senators so it'd be equal representation in the upper house mm-hmm. so um you get proportional representation in the lower house to uh, appease the larger states, mm-hmm. and uh, the upper house would have equal representation to appease the lower, the the smaller states. Right, and all bills would have to originate, all taxes, tax increases would have to uh, originate in the lower house, mm-hmm. and then be approved by the upper house. Right, so that you know that's just kind of that's the system that we know today. Mm-hmm. That would change in 1913 when the 17th Amendment was ratified, mm-hmm. and it went the senators, the election of senators went from election of state house from the being elected in the state houses mm-hmm. to being directly elected by the people right uh so you would you now we have a vote at, well, since 1913 you u.s citizens have a vote directly for their u.s senators mm-hmm. within the state and one more important debate that i'd like to bring up because i think it's fundamental in understanding how our uh, election system and our voting system has been uh implemented mm-hmm. and that is uh the argument that was proposed proposed by Hamilton and another and Alexander Hamilton and other federalists mm-hmm. and that is that they didn't quite believe or trust that the general public could be trusted to uphold the uh, the republic and the in the values of the republic over a long period of time right. so Hamilton and some of the other federalists wanted to remove as much of the influence that the general masses would have in de- in determining how the government was ran mm-hmm. and wanted to leave more of the power in the in the aristocracy like right. the landed gentry, which is why you see um, the upper house being the senators being kind of more like the House of Lords in England. Right. Which is like the, they're they're the, the the elites of the of the of the of society mm-hmm. and why you see for such a long time not being able the public not being able to directly elect those senators right right so you take those that kind of argument 
on top of the issues of proportional representation versus equal representation. And you can kind of see how the electoral college and the type of voting that we see in those winner take all elections, we'll mm -hmm. get into that in just a second, yeah. um, kind of manifest and why and see how those early debates within the constant continental Congress, mm -hmm. the constitutional convention, mm -hmm. um, ended up influencing our voting system today right okay so the voting system that the u.s employs is called first past the post voting system right or a majoritarian voting system what that means is that it's a winner take all right so plurality voting so that what what all of this means is that the candidate with the highest percentage of votes cast wins the election mm -hmm. i'd never heard uh, that term first past the post before mm -hmm. so what what that what what that looks like mm -hmm. is that you don't have to have 50% of a vote to win the election. Mm -hmm. Like Brazil, you have to have 51% in order to win. Okay. Whereas uh, the United States, mm -hmm. you can win with 41% of the vote right. as long as you have more votes than the next person. Oh, wow. Okay. And yeah, so, right. so then you win the entire representation. Right. There's no proportional representation within the member districts. Mm -hmm, mm -hmm. So you have 400, and there's 435 U.S. Rep representatives. Right. And with... Within each of those member districts, it's a winner-take-all, first-past-the-post voting system. Right. Whoever gets the most votes gets 100% of the representation. Mm -hmm. um, so uh, in the United States, all, all states except Maine and Nebraska in the District of Columbia use FT, FPTP, first-past-the-post, for, for the electoral college votes, so for the president. It, it's it's interesting because the United States employs separate elections for its chief executive mm -hmm. and for its legislature. Mm -hmm. Whereas in England, they don't have separate elections. You vote for the House of Commons, and right. then the House of Commons elects the chief executive. Oh, wow, okay. So the United States, specifically as part of a checks and balance system, mm -hmm. ha holds separate elections for its executive and its legislature. It's it's uh, one of the many great things about the Constitution that I that I like is right. that ha having that checks within the voting system mm -hmm. to limit um, because that makes so the Congress and the executive aren't beholden to each other, even if they're from the same party, right? Because the Congress can then say to the president, we were elected on our platform. You were elected on your platform. We have to find a way to work, but we're mm -hmm. not beholden to each other. Exactly. Okay. So some of the effects of winner take all voting mm -hmm. also known as plurality, mm -hmm. which is a simple majority. Okay. So it just, you win by having more votes than everybody else. Mm -hmm. It's just a bunch of different terms that are thrown, right. thrown around for winner take all. Mm -hmm. Um, but what this leads to is that larger parties, because of because of w being winner take all in each member district, mm -hmm. that larger parties are going to consistently win those um, at, a, at a widespread election. Okay. So when you're talking about a national election, the larger parties are going to win more often than mm -hmm, smaller mm -hmm. parties. So they're okay. going to have just generally more um, because there's more support widespread. Mm -hmm. They're going to win more elections. Okay. Um, then also, uh, or geographically concentrated. You don't see this as much in the United States. You mm -hmm. see this more in England okay. with the Scottish Nationalist Party, right. which the Scottish Nationalist Party has never had any power within Parliament, mm -hmm. but because they're so geographically concentrated, their right. support is so geographically concentrated, they'll win those first-past-the-post voting mm -hmm. um, districts because they have that rep that concentrated mm -hmm. representation. Mm -hmm. But because smaller parties are usually dispersed more, right. they don't have that that concentrated membership okay so they generally won't win those first past the post voting in any particular member district mm -hmm. and they're not broad enough to have a broad appeal okay to get a national to get national recognition right so it's usually the large parties that have national recognition or have geographically concentrated voting like okay geographically okay. concentrated support right will generally win within within first past the post voting okay. districts so that another effect of 
winner take all voting. And mm-hmm. this is not so much in the United States as it is in like in England, mm-hmm. which but you can get a one party controlled government where the government will have a complete mon- one party will have complete monopoly on power. Right. Because the United States has a bicameral legislature, it's not as it's not as easy to have complete monopoly on power because you can have different parties winning different houses like we right, see now right, like the right. democrats having house representatives and the and the republicans having the senate mm-hmm. but what that does over time is that um within that was that one party majoritarian if you control 50 percent of that chamber mm-hmm. you're going to have complete monopoly on power right so some of the benefits though of winner take all voting is that it's an easy concept to understand mm-hmm. you know the average person can be like okay that person got more votes than this person mm-hmm. therefore they won the election you right. don't have to sit there and worry about proportional representation or how many seats this party is going to get because they got this per- this percentage of the mm-hmm. vote it's mm-hmm. it's very it's it's pretty straightforward right people can understand the election results and it's over you can count the votes really quickly and it's a fast process Mm -hmm. so the monopoly on power that this type of voting system creates Mm -hmm. because a party will have complete control of the chamber they kind of uh, they'll have pretty much control over what agenda they want to push right so they'll have they can consider they the party can get together and push a consistent strategy mm-hmm. on the national stage. Mm-hmm. And then they can also look for socially beneficial outcomes because it's a, more of a unified party, more of a unified message. And mm-hmm. because it's it's one party in a unified manner with monopoly on government, they can, even though it's socially unpopular, they, mm-hmm. can, they can push more beneficial outcomes because they have more of that unified front. Right. Does that make sense? Yes. Okay. So now we're going to take a break. But when we come back, we're going to talk about criticisms of first-past-the-post voting. And then we're going to touch on two major social movements in U.S. history that have to do with voting. You have been listening to To the Republic. I am Jake. And I'm Jeff. And now a word from our sponsors. KXRW Community Radio wants to thank our friends and sponsors at Boomerang Therapy Works, where exercise is medicine. At Boomerang, they offer a variety of one-on-one treatment options that can be tailored to your health and wellness. They offer physical therapy, massage therapy, personal trainers, exercise programs, group classes, and specialize in customized Parkinson's treatments. Located in downtown Vancouver, more info available at boomerangtherapyworks.com, where exercise is medicine. Community Radio Like This is brought to you by the generous support by our founding sponsors at ADCO Commercial Printing and Graphics. Clark County's local print shop since 1993, ADCO features stationery, posters, flyers, tickets, business cards, stickers, catalogs, and much more. Print on anything and mail anywhere. Learn more at adco1.com. That's A-D-C-O, the number one, dot com. Thank you to CBD American Shaman for supporting our radio community. CBD American Shaman are dedicated to bringing wellness through ultra-concentrated, terpene-rich CBD. The oil is derived from all-natural, 100% organic, gluten-free, non-GMO, 0% THC industrial hemp. CBD American Shaman is located in Vancouver at 2700 Northeast Andreessen Road, Suite A5. For more information, call 866-GOT-PAIN. That's 866-GOT-PAIN. Welcome back. You are listening to To The Republic. I'm Jeff. And I'm Jake. 
In the last segment, we discussed the development of the two-party system in the early republic under the Articles of the Confederation and the Constitution. We then defined the voting system in the United States as first-past-the-post voting and its effects and benefits. Now we are going to take a look at the criticisms of that voting system. So one of the f- ma- major criticisms of uh, first-past-the-post voting, or winner-take-all, is that voters in the system feel that they need to vote for the candidate they think can win over the candidate they prefer. Mm-hmm. So there, if, if you have, so say in like the Republican primary, you mm-hmm. had, there's one candidate that you prefer versus one that you think is going to win or could beat Hillary Clinton, right? Right. So, you're more than likely going to. It's called tactical voting, is mm-hmm. what the term is for this. And that is, you're more will. You're it because you're you're worried about. You just have to get more votes than the other person. It forces you to want to vote for the person that you think can win versus the mm, person that you would right. you would more likely prefer. Mm-hmm. So what what that does is what. The fear is, is that you have what kind of happened in 2000 with Ralph Nader mm-hmm. gain, taking a bunch of votes away from Al Gore. Mm-hmm. And in Florida, he he got something like 2.5% of the vote in mm-hmm. Florida. Mm-hmm. It will, when on exit polls of those voters who voted for Ralph Nader, the vast majority of whom preferred Gore over Bush. Mm-hmm. So if you think that those people who had voted for Gore instead of Nader, even though they right. preferred Nader... Gore could have won Florida, which yes. would have completely changed the election. Right. Okay. So that so tactical voting works in a way, but it it, it also creates this um, this push towards candidates that we may not like, but mm-hmm. we think can win. Right. And this gets into the next criticism of winner take all voting, and that's it promotes votes against a candidate instead of votes for a candidate. Okay. So I'm like people who voted for Trump because they didn't like Hillary. Mm -hmm. Right. So you, you get these because you're voting for people you in the primaries Mm -hmm. or within, you know, one, one level of voting, you're voting for people yet you think can win, but then it gets to the general election Mm -hmm. and you're voting against other people. So it it, it keeps putting up these candidates that nobody really likes, but yet they keep voting for them because they think they can win because it creates this perception. Right. Right. So then this also creates higher media influence on public perception of Mm. who the top two candidates are. Yeah. So you're going to look to who the media is saying are the top two candidates and that's going to influence who you think can win elections and gravitates your vote towards. So you can see how this winner take all system continues to kind of force certain people Mm -hmm. towards elections. Yeah. And um, so that it also affects uh, young and new candidates because they're generally perceived as unknown and unlikely to win. Mm -hmm. So can't, so those candidates lose votes. Right. So you, you often see that like Beto O'Rourke in, in, uh, in Texas Mm -hmm. lost a lot of, votes because he was seen as new mm-hmm. and uh, up and coming and therefore couldn't really win an election. So there was people who were, you know, didn't really want to vote for him. Mm-hmm. Uh, and then you also get the issue of wa- wasted votes, people feeling that their votes are, are being wasted. Mm-hmm. So they don't vote. And this creates apathy. So oh, what that means right, is that right. um, low vote turnout because voters see their votes as wasted. This is due to the voters feeling that their votes is being cast towards a candidate that has no shot at winning mm-hmm. or for a candidate that is going to win by such a large margin they don't show up to vote anyway. Right. So think about if you're a Republican voting in, in Washington state mm-hmm. for president or mm-hmm. for senator and you think King County completely controls your completely controls the state in terms of elections, right. you're not going to show up to vote because you're like, my candidate's not going to win anyway. Mm-hmm. So then those votes go to waste. Or if you're like a Democratic voter in Seattle and you're voting for the Senate candidate, you can be like, well, my candidate's going to win anyway. Why should I show up and vote? Oh, right, so you right. get, because you have such wide gaps in, in popularity in terms of, because it's all first past the post voting, mm-hmm. there's no proportional representation within these member districts mm-hmm. that you get you get people either apath- apathy on both ends of it. Mm-hmm. Either I don't think my candidate can win 
mm-hmm. or I think McKenna's going to win anyway. So yeah, that's what I was going to say. It's interesting that it goes both ways. Mm-hmm. So the final criticism about first-past-the-post voting is that its effects on political parties. Mm-hmm. Economist Jeffrey Sachs in his book The Price of Civilization discusses what he calls Dervager's Law, which argues that constituencies that use first-past-the-post voting methods will lead to two-party systems. Mm-hmm. So it's, that's when we're talking about kind of our original point, was right. that the United States' system, though it wasn't set up as a two-party system, because of the uh, the concerns about proportional representation mm-hmm. versus mm-hmm. equal representation kind of led to this two-party system. So the mm-hmm. system that they in place for voting led Led to two parties becoming dominant within the United States. Right. So I think Jeffrey Sachs's quote in his book, I think, really sums up everything that we've been talking about really nicely. And I'll just read that quote right now. And so he says, the main reason for America's majoritarian character is the electoral system of Congress. Members of Congress are elected in single member districts according to the first past the post principle, meaning that the candidate with the plurality of votes is the winner of the congressional seat. The losing party or parties win no representation at all. The first-past-the-post elections tend to produce a small number of majority parties, perhaps just two, a principle known in political science as Dervager's Law. Small parties are trampled in first-past-the-post elections. So now that we've kind of tied the bow on the voting system in the United States, Mm -hmm. I think we're going to completely shift gears and look at two major political movements that had to do with voting in the United States. Yeah, so the reason we wanted to address these political movements was to demonstrate the fact that this right to vote in the U.S., is one that certain populations had to fight for. Mm-hmm. Um, and I think that has a lot to do with, I think a lot of what happened historically plays into voter suppression tactics that we'll address later Okay, um, in the show. Um, but also, you and I very much support and celebrate democracy, and we understand how important voting is. Yes. And I think that if we look at it historically and, and kind of the fight for that right, I think that emphasizes what we're trying to say. That's very well said. The two social movements that we're going to look at resulted in the ratification of the 19th Amendment in 1920, which federally permitted women's right to vote, and the passing of the Voting Rights Act of 1965. So it's often said that the women's right movement began at the 1848 Seneca Falls Convention in Seneca Falls, New York, which was originally known as the Women's Rights Convention. This convention was dedicated to fight for social, civil, and religious rights for women. Um, and there's some real interesting elements of this convention. They had a, uh, a declaration of sentiments, which was kind of like um, the manifesto of, of the convention. But they in this manifesto, they had a list of 18 wrongs that they were trying to right. And uh, that's the exact number of wrongs in the Declaration of Independence. Okay. Which I thought was kind of cool. That is super interesting. Um, so in this, throughout this document, there was a pr- uh, proposition that all men and women uh, should be created equal. Um, they demanded the natural right of equality in all spheres. And all demands were met except for women's suffrage. And that's super interesting because when looking at the reason why women weren't allowed to vote in the early republic before the passage of the... Uh, 19, 19th Amendment mm-hmm. in 1920 was that because prior to that, um, voting rights were only allowed, were only given to those who owned property. Right. And since men were only, only men owned property, therefore women couldn't mm-hmm. vote. Yeah. So this convention, it was just like 300 people um, of men. Uh, there were some men and women, obviously. <laughs> uh, there were some uh, African-American indiv- individuals there kind of 
talking about how the women need to take it upon themselves to to fight for those rights and okay. and to really make movements towards that. Um, but what ended ended up happening was across the U.S. they were mocked in newspapers um, for even trying to ga- gather steam and make movement on the right to vote and and these other things that they had asked for. So they had more pushback than they had support. Yes. Okay. Um, and so after this convention, after the Seneca Falls Convention in 1848, um, women's rights advanced pretty slowly after that. However, at the turn of the century, we begin to see women expanding their roles into society and outside of the household. Um, so there were a lot of social and economic factors that played into the push by and for women to become members of the workforce and politics and voting. Mm-hmm. Um, but I don't, I don't, we don't have enough time <laughs> to get into those factors. But I do want to look at the right to vote. Yeah. So as women began to kind of expand outside of the household, they were also becoming increasingly active in movements like politics, social movements, and uh, women's health, which I think naturally leads to their desire and need to participate in the voting system to bring change. Oh, for sure. Um, I need to note, and I think we should note, that some Western states did grant women the right to vote and participate in politics. Um, At just the state level? At the state level, right. Um, And then, obviously... The 19th Amendment granted that on the federal level. So during World War One, you see an increase in activity um, and more aggressive tactics used by women um, fighting for the right to vote. Uh, these more militant tactics were influenced by the women's movements in Britain. Okay. And they're more militant. And when I say that, I mean they were like chaining themselves to the White House gate. Okay. Um, and drawing way more attention. And, and they were actually getting arrested and spending time in jail and... In during their jail sentences, I think one one case that I read about was like seven months, and they began uh, they started uh, fasting and like refusing food. Okay, to, to continue that protest for the right to vote. Mm-hmm. What we also see during World War One is kind of a split in the women's movement, where some women viewed participating in the war efforts as you know leading to respect and equal rights. Others argued that it was a potential threat to social reform. Interesting. Yeah, but in the end, I think it is argued that the patriotic support for the war did help women because it convinced people that it was wrong to withhold that right. So they're 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 working in these wartime industries and so you had you know kind of a social realization or understanding that to withhold their right to to vote and make decisions for the country while they're supporting it in these mm-hmm. efforts just wasn't fair it, it brings forth the contradiction right it kind yes. of holds like a mirror up to society definitely and, and it forces you know society to look at itself mm-hmm. and, and and kind of confront some of those contradictions right um so in the end this all culminated in the ratification of the 19th amendment in 1920 and i, I think it's important to note that like other oppressed populations in american history women weren't given these rights they they had to fight for these rights that were said to be inalienable. Mm-hmm. It's interesting that women around the Civil War era were some of the most staunch abolitionists mm-hmm. in the liber- uh, liberation of African Americans and allowing uh, African Americans to become citizens and voters. Voters, right? And because they viewed that the that those extending those rights to African Americans mm-hmm. would be a stepping stone to them to then be able to gain those same rights, right? 
Yeah, it's interesting that you bring that up because I think that's a good transition into the second political movement, which is the civil rights movement of the mm-hmm. 1960s, um, which marked the end of a process that began with the ratification of the 15th Amendment at the end of the Civil War. And that ratification of the 15th Amendment um, made it illegal for citizens to be denied the right to vote on account of race, color, and previous conditions of servitude. So in the 1950s and 60s, there were, segregation was a rule throughout the country in housing and jobs and socially. Uh, and throughout much of the South, this segregation was enforced legislatively. Uh, unemployment was less stable and education opportunities were extremely limited by substandard segregated schools. So one thing that we see during this era is African-Americans begin winning court cases that are addressing these civil rights. Okay. And that started setting precedent for towards equality. Which in turn, you know, that increased tensions between white Americans and African Americans. Sure, as as white Americans began to see possibly their power starting starting to maybe become lessened right. by African Americans right. having more advocacy and more right. agency within the system, which we know to be false. It's all that's all perceived loss of power. Right. But you can kind of see where that tension would arise. And 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 so much so, like, in the laws, you constantly see an attempt to make voter registration more difficult by charging poll taxes or requiring literacy tests and making residency requirements more difficult. Yeah, I think with the uh, with a literacy test, there's, like, classic examples of, you know, at during Jim Crow mm-hmm, legis- mm-hmm. Um, segregation era after the Civil War where right. African Americans would come to the polls and they were required to read basically like an academic journal. Mm-hmm. And if they couldn't, they were... They were denied the right to right. vote, but if when whites came to the polls, they had to read super easy, like one sentence, yeah. uh, uh, test that said like I have a cat mm-hmm. or my name is George. Right. That's something I found in the research was that not only was that kind of the 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 standard the difference, but also who was administering the test and the judge of those literacy tests yeah. often denied um, African American voters to register. Mm-hmm. Um, but then, but then you start to see like churches and student groups and different african-american communities begin to organize and they start protesting and marching for their civil rights and that right to vote um, unobstructedly in the united states however what came with that was a terrible terrible violence murder and lynchings you know targeting african-americans who who were fighting for those rights Mm -hmm. um and also, in turn to that, you had you started to see more media coverage. So these reports of violence and and murder were were showing up in newspapers all over the U.S. and into American homes. And um, more specifically, probably the most significant event was or is known as Bloody Sunday. Um, so so it's argued that that was the pinnacle of this tension and violence, putting pressure on the U.S. government. Mm-hmm. Um. So and what I mean by that is as as the media started covering what was happening with the civil rights movement, more and more pressure was put on the United States government to do something about Interesting. it. Interesting. Um, so you see in on Bloody Sunday, it was a march from Selma to Montgomery in Alabama where you see peaceful protesters just marching from one one city to another to represent their their civil rights and, and, and fighting for this right to vote were attacked by state troopers and with tear gas and uh, billy clubs. And these events were, were televised and there was images of, you know, individuals who were beaten unconscious that circulated on the covers of newspapers. That's horrifying. So that's, that's directly bringing these events into American homes. Mm-hmm. So ultimately, the government did 
decide to step in and address these civil rights issues. And that's where, in the wake of this Bloody Sunday, you, you see the Voting Rights Act of 1965. So this act, it, it I have a list of things here that it, it did um, that were permanent, but also so there, are, there are some temporary, air quotes, temporary things <laughs> that, that it lists that's, that it claims that sometimes have to be reauthorized periodically. Okay. So the two two main, main things that stood out to me was it banned racial discrimination in voting nationwide, but it also banned those literacy tests we were talking about. Um, and so those temporary things that I think are interesting was um, it required certain states and local jurisdictions to provide assistance in languages other than English to voters who are not literate or fluent in English. So that is one of those temporary things where they have to reenact. I assume when they're seeing kind of those tactics being used to limit registration or yeah. voting. Yeah, yeah. Um, the other one is it gives U.S. Attorney General the power to send federal examiners and observers to monitor elections. Okay. Which I think is interesting as well because yeah. it kind of puts that policing over the system. For sure. And, and that was something that um, Reconstruction try to emphasize mm -hmm. and then that when reconstruction ended uh the freeman's bureau which was the the executive uh authority that that made voting uh you know more safe mm -hmm. for african-americans mm -hmm. in the south was that that was ended after uh reconstruction was 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 formally uh uh stopped mm -hmm. and then it's interesting that um it, it came back under the voting rights act right and i also think it demonstrates how important voting was to the point where if if you have people protecting it to the point where you have individuals who are now gaining that right to vote and now the government recognizes that that needs to be protected mm -hmm. um in the end i think that the voting rights act of 1965 permitted other opposed minorities uh, such as native americans the ability to register to vote without obstruction so i think with the with that i with that terminology, um, as far as, you know, it wasn't just African-Americans. I think it also expanded into other minorities that were also okay. being oppressed and, and, and prevented from voting. Okay. I think that's, that's really interesting because, I mean, there are so many other minority groups that have been marginalized. Yes. And I think uh, those definitely need to focus as well. Right. Um, so, yeah, once again, like other oppressed populations in American history, African-Americans had to fight for these rights that, again, were said to be inalienable. Which is important because it's fulfilling an, a constitutional promise. Right. Like we said at the beginning of, of this, this part, you know, it was kind of the end. You got to see the, you know, with the ratification of the 15th Amendment, it finally came full circle and truly gave everyone the right to vote mm -hmm. regardless of race. Yeah. And with that, we're going to take a quick commercial break. And when we come back, we're going to look at examples of modern voter suppression. You have been listening to To the Republic. I am Jake. And I'm Jeff. And now a word from our sponsors. Community radio like this is brought to you by the generous support by our founding sponsors at ADCO Commercial Printing and Graphics. Clark County's local print shop since 1993, ADCO features stationery, posters, flyers, tickets, business cards, stickers, catalogs, and much more. Print on anything and mail anywhere. Learn more at adco1.com. That's A-D-C-O, the number one, dot com. 
Many thanks to our friends at Se Chow Catering, Columbia River Tap Room and Eatery. Chef Peter has been cooking for over 20 years in the Vancouver area. Private events including wine tasting, wine dinners, appetizer parties, and cooking demos. Se Chow Tap Room and Eatery boasts space for private events or drop in for a quick refreshment and live music on Thursday and Friday evenings. Just a stone's throw away from the Columbia River, Se Chow Greater Vancouver's premier catering company. Conveniently located at 2501 Southeast Columbia Way, Suite 270 in Vancouver. More information available at www.seychow.com. That's www.se-chow.com or directly at 360-210-5522. KXRW Community Radio wants to thank our friends and sponsors at Boomerang Therapy Works, where exercise is medicine. At Boomerang, they offer a variety of one-on-one -on -one treatment options that can be tailored to your health and wellness. They offer physical therapy, massage therapy, personal trainers, exercise programs, group classes, and specialize in customized Parkinson's treatments. Located downtown Vancouver, more info available at boomerangtherapyworks.com where exercise is medicine. Welcome back. You are listening to To The Republic. I'm Jeff. And I'm Jake. In the last segment, we discussed the U.S. voting system, women's suffrage, and the 1965 Voting Rights Act, which showed how marginalized groups fought for the right to vote in the United States. So now we're going to discuss modern voter suppression mm -hmm. by first analyzing the issue of voter fraud. Okay. Specifically, how voter fraud is used as justification for voter ID legislation right. that we feel is a way to suppress certain populations' right to vote in the U.S. Mm -hmm. it's, we kind of feel looking at some of the ID legislation as kind of just basically a continuation of uh, literacy tests yes. and some of the uh, voter suppression that occurred during uh, Jim Crow legislation mm -hmm. in, in uh, segregation era yeah. uh, that we discussed in the last segment. Mm -hmm. So we'll start now by showing research on a current research on occurrences of voter fraud in U.S. elections, right. which I think point to voter fraud not really actually being a real problem. Right, in, but it is something that you're constantly hearing about. Yes, and I think it undermines our elections. Mm -hmm. But I think it's more of a solution. It's not. It's it's almost a solution without a problem. Okay, the yeah, voter ID legislation, yeah. but it's. But you could argue that it's it's more of a solution to a different problem. Right. So I think it's that's kind of teasing a little bit. Mm -hmm. But I think you'll kind of see where we're going as we look, look more deeply into uh, voter fraud and voter ID legislation. Definitely. So the first source I went to to look at instances of voter fraud mm -hmm. was the Brennan Center of Justice. Okay. And they reviewed elections that, um, that have been studied for voter fraud by government agencies and private firms. So they found that inc incidences of voter fraud mm -hmm. as a percentage of total votes cast was only between 0 0.0025 to 0.0003%. Whoa. This study included instances of clerical errors or bad data matching <laughs> in voting counting technology. So it even took not even impersonation fraud, which right. is the one that you're constantly always hearing about of people going to the polls mm -hmm. pretending to be somebody else and casting a vote, but it's also including instances where the the computer messed up right which isn't really even fraud it's mm -hmm. just a clerical error that's interesting and it's still that low yeah oh yeah that's so low so then the washington post then conducted a study in 2014 this study found that there were only 31 credible instances of impersonation fraud um, from 2000 to 2014 mm -hmm. out of one billion votes cast billion one billion votes cast during that time wow. span 
So impersonation fraud accounted for just 0.0000000031% of votes <laughs> in 14 years. Yeah. Wow. Yeah. The Washington Post study was then backed up by an Arizona state independent study that found a similar percentage of impersonation fraud after analyzing votes cast in specifically the 2012 and 2016 elections. Okay. So that's the, the 2016 election is the one that Trump said all of the you know, illegal immigrants were voting mm-hmm. and that's why he lost the popular vote. Okay. Um, <clears throat> but those numbers were similar to what the, the Washington study. post to what the Washington post found. Wow. So you have three studies, the Brennan, the Brennan center, the Washington post and the an Arizona state study, all finding very similar mm-hmm. percentages in terms of voter fraud as a percentage of votes cast. Wow. So courts have even began to look at this topic. Okay. Um, and the fifth circuit court of appeals mm-hmm. ruled that Texas's voter ID laws were racially discriminatory mm-hmm. since only two cases of impersonation fraud were found in Texas prior to the state enacting the law. Right. Right. Um, which I mean, it shows that this is just incredibly rare. Yeah. Um, also a federal trial court in Wisconsin reviewed the state's strict photo ID law. Mm. Uh, the court found that impersonation fraud were quote, extremely rare and a truly isolated phenomenon that has not posed a significant threat to the integrity of Wisconsin's elections. I think mm. it's a super interesting quote. Yeah, absolutely. That, we're, that federal trial courts are now making this argument that voter ID legislation is almost unnecessary because it's such a rare phenomenon. Right, right. That it's we're, we're enacting all of these laws that it, to a threat that's not really there. Right. That's kind of what you were mm-hmm. saying earlier. There's a solution to something that just really isn't a problem. Uh-huh. Okay. So it, additionally, um, the one thing I wanted to add was that conservative Supreme Court Justice John Paul Stevens mm-hmm. uh, said that he regrets his decision to uphold Indiana's voter ID law when it went to the Supreme Court. Oh. He, by, he said that these laws are, quote, now wild, widely regarded as a means of voter suppression rather than a fraud prevention. Perfect. (laughs) Yeah. Yeah. I think we should reiterate that that's a conservative justice saying that. Yeah. Which is important because this used to be a bipartisan issue. Right. Where there was support. At least there should be support for Mm -hmm. ending these Mm -hmm. legislation. Absolutely. For this legislation. So there's even been federal investigations looking into uh, voter fraud. Okay, that makes sense. Yeah. So I mean, when it there's been public outcry mm-hmm. to look into this, so right. federal investigations have happened. Um, a special investigation unit was formed by the Department of Justice mm-hmm. to review elections to find instances of voter fraud, and they did this in 2002 and the 2000 in 2004. Okay. For those elections, those election years, uh, their findings concluded that o- only. Point zero 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 one three percent of votes <laughs> cast were fraudulent. Right. So I mean, they're finding similar, if not exact, percentages as that the other studies as other studies found. And this right. is the Department of Justice, exactly. Right. And they have a ton of resources, way more resources than the Washington Post mm-hmm. do. Uh, <clears throat> the unit found no evidence of in-person impersonation fraud. Wow. Over a five-year period, the investigation found no conservative, no concerted effort to tilt the election. Okay. So, I mean, it's our elections are not being affected by voter right, fraud. Right. I just want to keep uh, reiterating that <laughs> I mean, point. I, and, and the data is showing that. Yes. So, just to kind of wrap up this look into the numbers, mm-hmm. I just want to say that private and federal investigations, as well as state and federal judges, mm-hmm. have all concluded that voter fraud is rare and do not in any way affect U.S. elections. Exactly. Therefore, the implementation of voter ID laws by state and local governments and calls for it at the federal level 
are solutions to a different problem. Right, right. Demographics and legislative districts that don't favor the party in power. Mm-hmm, mm-hmm. Um, so now I think we're going to pivot and look at gerrymandering. Okay. Which I think is a uh, a very issue that I don't... Th- is, it's a very problematic issue I don't mm-hmm. think a lot of people really know about. Right. I don't think so either. I, I know that when I, when I first took a political science course that I had heard that term over and over, but when you really get down into what it is, I, I think it's helpful to understand. Mm-hmm. So gerrymandering is kind of simply defined as drawing political boundaries to give your party a numeric advantage over an opposing party. Right. And to kind of spell this out is think about it as if you had a district of 50 people. Okay. There's 50 people that are that are living in an area. Mm-hmm. And you have to draw in there. Okay, so let's put the pr- proportions. We'll just set this up. There's mm-hmm. 60% blue uh-huh. and 40 percent red okay that's how the, that's how the 50 people are are divvied up right okay so then now those 50 people are going to be separated by districts okay and each district will have one representative to the u.s house of representatives mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. you know how our like how our system works yeah. now so ideally those because it's a 60 40 split mm-hmm. blue to red those seats should then be divvied up 60 40 percent right so a few, uh, so a few of the seats would be blue, and and then a less rep- proportion, but mm-hmm. still some seats would be held by the red, right? Because it's be proportional representation, like the House of Representatives was meant to be, right? What gerrymandering does is that it draw it it allows the the government mm-hmm. to draw up the lines as they see fit. Mm-hmm. So if you have if the if the blues were in charge of the state government could then decide how those lines were drawn mm-hmm. to give themselves a a proportion greater than the reds in each of the districts. So they're drawing the lines of the districts? Yes. Okay. So they get to because state legislatures get to draw up the lines right. of their of their districts within their states. So in our in our scenario here, the blues hold the state legislature. Mm-hmm. Just well just for conversation's right. sake. And they're able to draw the lines in such a way to where the the popular where all these 50 people are living mm-hmm. in each district to give the blues a uh a higher amount of 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 voters within each of those districts right. so they're going to win all five of those seats okay versus having it drawn in an equal way mm-hmm. to where there's a 60 40 seat distribution mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. now it's going to be 100 percent distributed to the blue side right because of how the lines were drawn versus where the population is living right so originally gerrymandering was a pro- was kind of a practice that was done to limit the effects of African American mm, voting when okay. they when African Americans began to get the right to vote mm-hmm. um, a lot of the state legislatures especially in the south were concerned about how that power shift mm. would occur and so they wanted to limit the effects of african-american voting right so, so drawing those lines to either include or exclude them in certain districts exactly well, okay. or, or marginalize them as part of the percentage of the voting population okay, okay. right so if you have a district that a, a bunch of african-americans are going to live in mm-hmm. you draw that line straight down right. the middle of that population oh. so that it's distributed not so they don't, don't control what the, so that population which would be would outweigh white voters mm-hmm. would then allow the African American candidate whoever they were voting for right. to then be able to shift 
the party seat in that district, mm-hmm. you draw the line down the middle of that population. Mm-hmm. Now that population's votes are split, split into two districts right. and now a smaller proportion of the voting population in those two districts mm-hmm. instead of being the majority in one. Right. So now the opposing party would be able to control both seats mm-hmm. instead mm-hmm. of splitting it one, one. Right. In modern times now you see both parties uh, within different states Mm -hmm. using this practice. It's not necessarily always a way to marginalize minority populations. Mm -hmm. It is a way to enhance um, political power. Right. And it doesn't have to have a racial component. Mm -hmm. Um, It just, that's how it kind of started in the U S the, the, the Democrats in New York um, in 2012 election in that uh, they won 60, 60, 66% of the popular vote. Mm -hmm. Um, in the state house, but won 21 out of 27 seats. So they were oh, definitely had a higher proportion right. of representation versus relative to how many votes they received. Right, right. Um, Republicans did the same thing in um, in the Pennsylvania state house, mm-hmm. where Democrats won 51 percent of the vote in that state, mm-hmm. but only controlled five out of 18 seats. <laughs> yeah. So they won the majority of right. of uh, they won the ma- they won the majority. Vote. of the votes right but had a a, a complete minority right. of seats so it's not so it's, it's not equal representation exactly because it's the way that the boundaries are drawn right and then this gets back to the point we made in the first segment about voter apathy mm-hmm. because now you're in a, it, you know, say you're a voter in a district you're vo- and you're voting for the the candidate that's most likely to lose because your party is underrepresented mm-hmm. in that district right it causes you not to vote right so I think that's why you see such low voter turnout mm-hmm. in certain districts is because you feel like your candidate has no shot to win based mm-hmm. on the amount of based on the population distribution of your district. Right. And a lot of and sometimes, as we've seen with gerrymandering, um, those districts are purposefully set up to right. vote that way. Mm-hmm. It's not a true representation because a, a counter argument to this would be saying, well, that's just the representation. Right. But it's as we're seeing mm-hmm. with gerrymandering, when institutionally the government can do this Mm -hmm. they can redraw the districts Mm -hmm. and if they redraw them for a political purpose Mm -hmm. they can skew those numbers so that this whole argument of well that's just the population distribution and that's just proportional representation Mm -hmm. that's not what the house of representatives was supposed to be it was supposed to be a reflection of the true um of of the of the true makeup of of the u.s right the senate is is going to be um, equal representation mm-hmm, mm-hmm. that would oh, this this gerrymandering wouldn't be as much of an issue if it wasn't uh if it was we're talking about the senate mm-hmm. we're talking about the house representatives right and that's where you know and and that's where you see most of this kind of gerrymandering tactics happening mm-hmm. so i feel gerrymandering is a real problem that, right that our elections and our voting faces not mm-hmm. just because of how it disproportionately um affects you know voters Mm -hmm. but how it also just kind of erodes belief in our democratic system Mm -hmm. when you have apathetic voters and as we've seen people Mm -hmm. have died and have been beaten to gain that access to vote Mm -hmm. and then just to have their vote almost become meaningless because of how boundaries have been drawn right i think it's also interesting to mention that legislation is constantly created or or used to prevent voter fraud when this is an example of a real issue that should be addressed Mm -hmm. yeah and so now i I think you you can see how institutionally um these 
you know, voters can be suppre- can still be suppressed even today. Mm-hmm. It doesn't quite take the same uh, outwardly violent nature that mm-hmm. it did in in previous decades, mm-hmm. but it's still just as every bit of effective um, now than it, I think it has been in the past. Absolutely. On a final note, um, remember that in the United States, we get to enact a peaceful transfer of power that is only done through voting. So when that opportunity comes, participate in your right to do so. Well, uh, this definitely has been fun. It's been an absolute blast. If you're interested in hearing more of our discussions or learning more about Jake and I, we also have a weekly podcast called Say What You Mean. It's available on iTunes, Stitcher, and SoundCloud. Um, You can also find us on our Say What You Mean podcast social media accounts. And again, thanks for listening, and be sure to tune into our show here on KXRW every month. Thank you very much. I've been Jake. And I've been Jeff. And you've been listening to To the Republic. Many thanks to our friends at Say Chow Catering, Columbia River Taproom and Eatery. Chef Peter has been cooking for over 20 years in the Vancouver area. Private events include wine tasting, wine dinners, appetizer parties, and cooking demos. Say Chow Taproom and Eatery boasts space for private events or drop-in for a quick refreshment and live music on Thursday and Friday evenings. Just a stone's throw away from the Columbia River, Say Chow Greater Vancouver's premier catering company. Conveniently located at 2501 Southeast Columbia Way, Suite 270 in Vancouver. More information available at www.say-chow.com. That's www.say-chao.com or directly at 360-210-5522. Thank you to CBD American Shaman for supporting our radio community. CBD American Shaman are dedicated to bringing wellness through ultra-concentrated, terpene-rich CBD. The oil is derived from all-natural, 100% organic, gluten-free, non-GMO, 0% THC industrial hemp. CBD American Shaman is located in Vancouver at 2700 Northeast Andreessen Road, Suite A5. For more information, call 866-GOT-PAIN. That's 866-GOT-PAIN. The mission of Right to Be Heard, soon to be known as Be Heard, is to build a more informed, engaged, and empowered civic community in Southwest Washington. Be Heard hosts online candidate forums and town hall meetings so citizens can make informed decisions. Be Heard publishes a central calendar that is a one-stop shop of all that's going on in Clark County politics. Information that promotes dialogue and active involvement in local events contributes to a healthy community. More information available at righttobeheard.org. That's R-I-G-H-T. The number two, the letter B, heard.org. The Community Angels at National Women's Coalition Against Violence and Exploitation have been supporters of KXRW Community Radio since the beginning. NWCave helps to inform and educate the prevention of violence against women and children. They have a dream, a world without violence. Learn more about how you can help at nwcave.org.